Caught Offside with Andrew Gumbling and J.J. Devaney. Oh, yes. Caught Offside from a basement in suburban New York. I'm from an apartment in Brooklyn. Andrew Gumbling and J.J. Devaney. What's up, brother? People are saying you look like little Dicky. Okay, so you've been like against my like without any permission you've been taking pictures of me and posting them for people to mock me even though i don't necessarily take that as an insult i don't need permission from you to do anything sir uh, it seems like there's something just unethical about what you're doing no well people have been i mean i i, I googled little dicky that's it's a kind reference a kind comparison look my hair's a mess but we don't even need to talk about it. We've talked about it on past weeks. It is what it is. This is month five of not having a haircut. What do you expect? Meanwhile, look at you. Would you, like, would you get a haircut this afternoon? Got a haircut uh, Friday, I believe. Yeah. How is that experience in a, in a social distanced world? Not great. You're wearing a mask. But he's still like, it's not like he's has his scissors on the end of like an eight foot pole. No. No, it's not like that. And, um, I had reservations about going, but I'm like, they're they're my local place, and I want to give them, you know, business. So, oh, don't make it about them. You're so vain. This is dude, all about I, you and your hair, dude. I cut my own hair already once this quarantine. Right, and you saw that it was an epic failure. You couldn't live through that experience again. Don't make this like. I'm sorry, this, um, Andrew. Andrew, some noble gesture. You're such a liar. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, the polls are in. People liked my own version of my haircut. And uh, uh, yeah, you're right, though. It was pure vanity. Just let the guy go at it. Uh, what a show we have coming up for you here today. The Manchester City News sent shockwaves throughout the footballing world. Uh, and so Andy May is going to join us in a little bit because he's very smart. Um, he can explain these things. Apparently, you can, too, according to you. Um, you no, made fun I, of me I, yesterday because I said I didn't understand it. You, once again, just let me have it. Uh, but Andy May is going to do it because I think he'll be nicer in the way he goes about it than how you would do it. You're a sensitive that. boy. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't deny that. I don't deny that. Uh, lots of Premier League to talk about. Chelsea played this afternoon. Christian Pulisic continues to do things that I can only imagine are completely and utterly endearing him to the Chelsea fan base in a way that maybe they were not anticipating six months ago. Um, MLS is back, so we will give a, a few observations from each of us after it's been roughly the first week or so of the tournament. We'll talk about how it's gone so far. Red Cards, Man of the Match, a nice mailbag with uh, with some questions that I'm, I'm intrigued by, and I think you will be as well. Um, let's get right into it. There's a lot to talk about here, so I want to start with the, uh, the battle for the top four. Um, it is very much on. Like I said, the Manchester City news only really makes it even more on um, with them now having clinched the number two spot. Uh, before we even get into the actual games and the analysis of it, I just want to remind everyone, look at the table, see how tight it is, three, four, five, six, and just know this, that the final week of the season, on the final match day, match day 38, Chelsea will host Wolves and Leicester City will host Manchester United. I mean... Could it could it be more perfect than having the season end with those two games happening, where where it truly could devolve into a, a playoff situation? Uh, so just know that you have that to look forward to, assuming that things remain as tight as they have been. That should be that should be pretty cool when things work out that way. 
but let's start now, JJ. Let's start with what happened to Manchester United um, against Southampton on Monday. I mean, like a draw is a draw, but sometimes a draw is a loss. And that was just a brutal way to drop two points when it seemed like they had that game pretty well in hand um, until they until they didn't. Now, I will say... Southampton, I, I think that's unfair. You're right. Southampton started excellent. Um, but then United, it seemed like... I don't know. I felt I kind of felt like they were in control. We should... I mean, they were in control on the scoreline, but I suppose you look at the stats, they were outshot and outpossessed at Old Trafford by Southampton. And Southampton played very, very well. But... I think I think we should focus on the equalizer, the thing that ultimately robbed them of the three points, and it's a it's a reoccurring theme. It's a set piece, it's a corner kick. Uh, Harry Maguire does not appear to be picking up anyone. Lindelof somehow gets wrong side of Michael Obafemi, who flicks the ball home, and your goalkeeper stays on his line when it comes right down the channel that he should be commanding. I mean, these are regular concerns and and to lock up the game Solskjaer had made a couple of substitutions and he brought in Matic and McTominay and um, I think it was just interesting that when Bruno Fernandes goes off they, they lose a bit of impetus um, United going forward at, at times look Mar- Marcus Rashford could easily have added a third that would have put it beyond Southampton um, and it was a brilliant block I can't remember who who did it right almost on the line as he's about to flick it home. So there was a little bit of, you know, misfortune there because lately the statistics are showing that United are scoring with all their chances. And I guess that was one that they really needed to get if they were going to close out this game. But Well, and, and earlier there was that amazing save on Martial on his chance. It looked like he was going to score. Right. Um, you know, it's, it's funny with United. I feel like, JJ, and United fans may not want to hear this, or maybe they will actually. I'll see how you perceive it. Don't you just feel like they are in the exact position that Liverpool were in, say, two, three years ago? And by that, I mean, like, their front three right now, Rashford, Martial, and Greenwood, like, it, it is clicking. It, it is clicking. Mm. This group is is top-notch. I saw a stat today that they've scored more goals. That front three has scored more goals than Juventus, than Liverpool, way more than Real Madrid. Um, and so... Like, think about what you just said. Maguire, Lindelof, De Gea. Yeah. I feel like this is where Liverpool were, and Liverpool made the right decisions. Okay, we don't need – we have, you know, this Salamane-Firmino situation that we have up front. We're good. Like, we don't need to mess with this, so let's spend our money wisely. And they went out, they got Van Dyke, they got Allison, and the rest is history. They're going to set a points record this year, and they won a Champions League final. With United, all I keep hearing about is that they need Jadon Sancho. But, like – I look at this and I see those numbers, how they're scoring goals almost at will. And yes, you can never score enough goals. I understand that. But don't you just think that it would be a smarter move for them to go out and buy, say, okay, if you want to pour somewhere between 70 to 80 million in whoever you perceive to be the best center half in the world, don't you think that's a smarter play than shelling out what will probably be like a world record transfer fee sum for Jaden Sancho? But yeah, but I think the point is that they've already done that. You know, they've already sent, spent, what, 70, 80 million on Harry Maguire. They've already gone out to the to the well before. Like Liverpool, Liverpool hadn't. No, no, Liverpool. no. But what I'm saying is they're going to, th- this summer, it's clear. Like what I, I keep seeing Sancho, Sancho, like right. that's the guy that the fans seem to want. And, and w- regardless of what's happened in the past, I'm saying 
I don't know that that's the smart play for me. I think like, I, would, I would reallocate those resources to an actual area of need, and then I think you're I think you're good. I I, I think we're going over all ground here, but um, I think you're right. But I I would add in another defensive central midfielder there. I mean, Matic has been good, but he matches Matic is getting up there. McTominay, we don't know how good he actually is. And we're going to, they're going to need protection there in that midfield. Um, also, I think Liverpool were having a, a very clearly defined style of play under Jurgen Klopp in that season that you're referring to prior. Like you could see that the team was, was, uh, was forming a real, distinctive style of play and I, I'm not sure I 100% see that with United yet I know they're deadly on the break and they've got so much pace but there's more to be done and the question again goes back is is Solskjaer the guy to do that he's certainly not the guy to organize this defense we talked about how we felt for a while that Michael Keane was defending better under Ancelotti maybe they need a more a more a manager with, uh, that can organize a back four rather than going and spending maybe you you look at Maguire and you think, how can I get the best out of him? The current manager isn't. I still think they need to rejig the midfield. Um, so yeah, so there's there's work to be done. And um, and and in fairness to Solskjaer, he said, look, he didn't make any excuses. He didn't talk about tiredness or the amount of games. He just said, you know, we we didn't play well. We didn't play well enough. Southampton imposed their game on us, and and that was that. But it's um that was a it's a, a serious uh, loss of points for United, considering how tight this whole thing is. Yeah, and look. <laughs> I can't give him credit for not using tiredness or amount of games as a, as a reason. Like Southampton, everybody's, everyone is in that boat. Southampton are in that boat. So, you know, I guess it's good to not make that an excuse, but like, of course that's not an excuse. Um, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out because earlier today, Chelsea and Norwich, uh, Chelsea one nil wasn't, it wasn't pretty, but I guess it doesn't have to be at this point. Norwich, who are already condemned to relegation, which we'll talk about later on in the podcast. Um, I guess they put up a little bit of a fight, although at one point shots were something like 18 to zero. Uh, yeah, look, I think Norwich may have mentally checked out. Maybe all the fake booing. <laughs> did, you, did you see that? So someone hit the fake boo noise. I, I mean, they were relegated in their last game against, who did they get? beaten by or destroyed West Ham West, West, West yeah Miguel Antonio went to town that's right and at the end uh, the BT sporter the whoever was in operating the fake crowd noise hit booze like Norwich fans I'm sure are pretty accepting of their kind of up and down situation and they would and, not have booed them off the field that's for sure yeah I, yeah I remember JJ when Newcastle were sent down which was a, a i mean that like reverberated through the league that was a big deal for newcastle to go down and i remember their fans stood and cheered and, and sang about how they're with them through and through like i don't think norwich fans <laughs> would have been so like harsh on this team that was just but i guess the guy down. panicked and he's like oh what what button do i press for relegation <laughs> uh boo <laughs> i mean i see like i could see why his head would go there but i yeah. don't know if that's if that's capturing the moment, the mood yeah, but, of the moment necessarily. Yeah, but Chelsea bouncing back there, getting a win. Pulisic was excellent again. Um, set up the goal for Giroud with a very good ball into the box. Could have scored one. Could have scored two himself actually. Um, but Chelsea didn't look great. But like you said, especially after that that defeat at Bramall Lane at the weekend, it was it was absolutely vital just to get the three points here tonight. And and um, yeah, and it's you know they've got a tough enough run in um, themselves. Now it's time for the portion of the show that we seem to have every week where I drool over Christian Pulisic. 
So he's done it again. He's a part of everything good that seems to happen for Chelsea in attack. The thing about his assist today, you know, he's he gets the ball on the, on the left and he's stationary. He's kind of just standing there and surveying, okay, what can I do to make something happen? And, and you know, in addition to his speed, his shiftiness, he's he's just become very, very good at creating just the right amount of space to be able to make something happen. And mm. he does that quick, you know, puts the shoulder down, quick shift of his body, and he's able to play in that ball to Giroud. Um, yeah, he's, it just feels like at least as an attacker, he's just filling out his game uh, in such a nice way. No. And so, well, go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you, but like, I mean, that that particular cross, like he had he had a plenty of time to do it. Um, the ball was played down down the left hand side to him, and he was just in that nice pocket. But it's more it's more just his confidence now. He's just every time he gets it, you're expecting what's he going to do when he runs at people. The defenders are absolutely panicking. Uh, his delivery his deliveries have probably got better as well. But yeah, his his all round game. Look, we're not going to wax lyrical over Christian Pulisic sending in a cross for Olivier Giroud against a relegated Norwich team who've been booed off by fake fans. I think we should we should probably probably hold our praise a little bit. But yeah, again, just another another game where he's been great. But I, in the reverse fixture, when thing when people were saying, when's he going to score? Will he be any good? Is this working out? Ah, I thought he was good at Carroll Road back in, in the fall. Yeah. So... Um, if you say we're going to hold our praise, um, if by that you mean I'm now going to compare him directly to Eden Hazard, then uh, yes, we will hold our praise. No, we're not doing this, that for a second week running. First of all, we didn't – no, no, no. We barely did that last week. This week I'm going deep on it. Uh, so like, <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of half kidding. This is a thing that I hate, and I said that in the beginning of the season, that it's wrong to compare Pulisic to Hazard. Uh, however, I saw this. Sky Sports have like a stat account. This is before today's game. So just know that when I go through this. They put out a statistical comparison between Pulisic at this stage in the season and Eden Hazard in his first season with Chelsea, 2012-2013. Goals per minute, Pulisic is 178. Hazard was 293. Okay. Minutes per goal slash assist, Pulisic is 143. Hazard is 132. Keep in mind that does not include today's game where where Pulisic had another assist. So that number has gone down even more and probably gotten closer to what Hazard was. And successful dribbles per 90, Pulisic is 3.1. Hazard, this kind of surprised me, was just 2.1. So now look, the numbers are what they are if you look at that. It it can paint whatever story you want it to paint. But I, I would just say this. Like, I'm not trying to say, oh, he's Hazard. Like, I'm just trying to say, A, Hazard wasn't Hazard yet, which is a thing that we had always said when Pulisic made this move. Um, But B, I do think you can look at that and you can at least say, I think it's fair to at least say that Pulisic is on, like, the proper sort of trajectory for a star in the making. Like, to be doing what he's doing at this club, uh, you know, I think the numbers kind of bear that out, that this this is right if you are hoping that this guy is going to one day fulfill the price tag that they put on him. We can just record this segment and play it next week and the week after and the week after and the week after that. So what, so what would you like us to do? Should we, on an American podcast, when Christian Pulisic is tearing it up and Chelsea played earlier today, should we just should we not talk about him? Can we, can we not say how excited we are to see... Uh, I'm not capable. We're contractually obligated to express our excitement. No, but can we not say we're excited to see what's going to come when he's got, he's got Wolves, he's got Liverpool at Liverpool, right? 
real test for him. No, no, no. Don't be that guy who says, let's wait and see what happens. Because then we should I'm not waiting and seeing what happens. The year, and we'll do one at the end of the year. You're, you're, a, you're a maniac. I'm, I've been the one that's been banging the drum for Christian Pulisic all the way through. But I'm just saying, tonight's game against Norwich is absolutely what I'd expect from him. It's one of those where we don't have to compare him to Hazard. We don't have to say, we don't have to do the Sally Field on it. We ha- don't have to go all American fanboy about it. He's great. We've established this now. At what point can we just like talk normally about him? This I'm talking normally. You know, this is, these are his stats. <laughs> okay, all right. No. Okay. Look, you hate him. I never knew this. This is an ugly side of you. You're welcome to you're welcome to the Christian Pulisic podcast hosted by Andrew Pulisic Gundling. Because oh. you're gonna change your name. <laughs> if only. <laughs> um, let's see, Leicester City, JJ, get their doors blown off by Bournemouth, but in a weird way. <laughs> no. No, what happened is Leicester blew their own doors off for Bournemouth. Have you ever seen anything as slapstick as that? Like, there's no amount of police academies. Remember how the shtick in police academy got to a point where you're like, at police academy seven, you were like, this is too much. Like, Like, it was so planned, the slapstick. This is, this was Leicester Academy, you know, version 10. Like, it was so bad. Like, Schmeichel, belts the ball off the arse of his center half and it ricochets back in, gives away a penalty. Like, Sonoichu ends up in the net like some kind of mad eel and starts kicking Callum Wilson out of frustration and gets sent off. And then the ball ricochets off the inside of Johnny Evans' leg and into the back. Like, they were a shot. Like, you couldn't write this stuff. No, it's like you're watching the highlights and you're only hearing Benny Hill music. I saw Ian Dark, uh, I think it was yesterday, he put out a tweet. He said, Leicester City have five points from 18 since the restart. As famous trainer Angelo Dundee once said to Sugar Ray Leonard, you're blowing it, kid. What are they doing? What would Joe Girardi say? Well, it's not what you want. It's not what you want. We We should go to Joe Girardi live. For all comments on on Leicester's failings as this season transpires, unbelievable. And um, so, so I just I just pulled this up to kind of give some context for where their season's gone to. This was from Boxing Day, um, from a, a newspaper. Club World Cup champions Liverpool will look to extend their lead at the top of the Premier League to thirteen points when they face second place Leicester City at the King Power on Boxing Day. It's also in and around this time where, you know, was Brendan Rodgers' stock was never higher than it was around that period. No, I mean, and look, it makes sense. Like, people weren't necessarily wrong. Now, he he leveraged that, which I suppose is a smart business play. He did indeed into a a sweet five-year contract. (laughs) Look, I don't want to... Here's the thing that's that's sad is like we are now turning them into a punchline because of the way things are transpiring. Right. But when it's all said and done, A, they could still qualify. Like they are still in pole position. Of and course. B, is it your Lester? 
Is it a bad season? Yes. Yes. Okay. They were so far ahead of everyone else. They were, they were, they'd position. Yeah. And how many times, Andrew, do we think, how many times in the future are United going to be so poor at the start in transition? How many times are Chelsea going to be in transition? We said this mush below the top two, somebody was going to rise into it. It could be Leicester. It could be Wolves. We speculated very briefly that it might be Everton. It wasn't. It, it was Wolves and Leicester, and Leicester were the ones that shot away. And they've just let it slip through their hands. And I, I can't really put my finger on it. Like, I, I remember saying a couple of weeks ago, maybe they're not feeding Vardy well enough, but Vardy's, I mean, Vardy's out ahead is the, in, in the race for the golden boot. They've just kind of, the restart's been, it wasn't, I mean, I don't know. I can't, I can't say exactly. Like, the weekend was just so comical, you have to write it off as an aberration. Like, they'll never do all those slapstick things again. But just generally, generally they've just been giving up sloppy goals. They've been they've been on top in games, but they haven't been able to find that that killer finish, which was a pattern of Brendan Rodgers' teams at Liverpool, uh, not 13-14 Liverpool, but pretty much every other iteration where they kept the ball. What was it he called it? Death by football. I mean, I don't know what this is death by, but this is disappointing. There's no two ways about it. Yeah, this is it's brutal watching this. Uh, if you're a Leicester fan, this is this is becoming increasingly painful uh, week after week. Uh, all right, we continue now, JJ. And the reason, and we mentioned this at the top of the show, the reason that so many of these matchups in the top four with top four consequences, the reason they're now so much more important than even what they were before is obviously because of the ruling that was handed down this past week regarding Manchester City. Um, so now I told you the other day that I found this all very confusing and you kind of did that thing that you do to me where you make me feel bad about myself. You said, this is all straightforward. No, no. You don't understand why I don't get it. I'm dumb. Uh, you can't relate to me anymore, but, but I believe that I am actually more in line with our listeners. I think financial fair play appeals, legalese. I think that it is confusing. I think it makes people's heads hurt. Even people who do understand it, I think it's it's hard to explain. It's it's minutia. Um, yeah, right. But this this is actually, as far as the financial fair play stuff goes, pretty clear cut. Well, in- you say that. I, I know you believe you could explain it to us. A, I don't believe you. Uh, B, I think you would do so in a way that is hurtful and condescending. Oh, it, it would be a demeaning experience for everyone. Right. But on the other hand... Um, Andy May, who is, uh, I would say, a longtime guest on this podcast. He's really a friend of this podcast. We've hung out outside of here many times whenever he's over in the United States. We have he's broken probably, bread together. He, he might be the first guest that we ever actually had on this show, like five and a half years ago, whatever it was. Uh, he is someone who I believe could explain this to us in a much more concise way, in a gentler way. And he is kind enough right now to join us. Andy, what's up, man? How are you? Yeah, great to see you both, because this is the first time in those five and a half years you speak of that we can actually see one another as we record, which is is fantastic. It, it, is, it is really great. And, uh, you know, you can also take the, as Andrew often does, he takes the cues from my smug face oh. and you can respond to them, which is, which is great. Yeah, exactly. So like I was just saying there, Andy, uh, can you explain what has happened here, why Manchester City have had this punishment overturned. Can you explain it to myself and our listeners as though we were an eight-year-old? 
I will make an attempt to do that. So, JJ, you've got a football team, Upper West Side United. Sorry about that, but you have to be United in this instance. It's fine. I am. I embrace it. Andrew, you've got a football team, Upper West Side City. You are City, Upper West Side City. Each of you, each season, make revenue of 10,000 US, which mainly, by the way, comes from ESPN New York and a very generous rights deal for radio broadcasts. In season one, each of you have costs of 11,000 US. So that's a 1,000 US loss. That can be covered by both of you. You've got money. Both of you are in it for the fun. You love the enjoyment of football. So you've you've happily said, okay, I'll put my hand up. I'll pay that 1,000 euro uh, dollar loss. And that's within the regulations because they allow for 25% of the losses to be covered by the owner of, of each of your teams, United and City. In season one, congratulations, JJ. You are the champions. You've won the league. You're happy that you've you've paid just that one thousand. You're more than happy with doing that because you are the champions, and that's what it's about for you, Andrew. You're really annoyed, of course. You want the title in season two, and you go out there. You get some stellar talent from Canada. You get the next big thing from Mexico, and you duly get what you want. You succeed. You win the title in season two. But looking at the numbers, there's a reason why you've been able to do this. Okay, so. The revenue that you both get is exactly the same. ESPN haven't been able to step up and give you some extra money. So it's 10,000 US coming into the coffers for both Upper West Side United and Upper West Side City. JJ, you actually make a profit because you've been really canny with your marketing. You've capitalized on your title success. You've made a profit of 2,000 US. Happy days. So over the course of those two seasons, you've actually... Broken even, fantastic achievement with the title success as well. Andrew, your costs are an enormous 18,000 US in that season two, your title winning season. And that encompasses a huge loss of 8,000 US, which you're more than happy to pay because you wanted to get back at JJ. You wanted City to win the title and beat United to it in season two. So you write off that loss of 8,000 US, but it's way over the 25% allowed by the regulations and therefore you have actually broken those financial fair play rules which are designed to stop owners coming in and having wild costs and potentially walking away and there being no upper west side city in future but you've done that on the quiet and that's all well and good the thing is right and this is potentially key to what we have with the current situation with man city we don't discover this for 6 years so you did it on the sly. You, you you managed to cover those costs. And I'm not saying, by the way, that Manchester City did that, but I'm talking about this instance. Right. And we discover that so many years down the line that actually there was a five-year limit for you to be punished. So therefore, you've got off the hook. So this is the thing that is interesting to me, this statute of limitations that we're talking about, because... You know, yesterday you're watching this and it looks like Pep Guardiola, he's demanding an apology from people. It looks like Manchester City are taking a victory lap, which I understand this was a huge decision for them. Um, but correct me if I'm wrong, they're not really exonerated from having committed any, from committing wrongdoing. All that we're, they're basically getting off here on a technicality. Am I kind of reading it right? That is potentially correct, although we, we have to say, as you said at the start, that we haven't seen the full judgment, the full reasoning 
behind this this case. So we can only speculate on the language, the limited language available in this media release, which is clearly you know nowhere near as detailed as as a full tribunal judgment. And in that, it says that the alleged breaches were either not established or they were time barred. So let's give Man City a bit of credit because obviously they've used two reasons there. They've said either not established or time barred. So we can't just say, okay, it's all that they were time barred. We have to say, well, actually, some of them were not established clearly because that's the language to use. Andy, um, it appears as if UEFA and the club, their own club financial control body, an independent body, were not on the same page as per UEFA's own rules. How is that possible? It's clearly disappointing if you are a team that's a rival to Manchester City, not only in the Champions League, but also in the Premier League too really that the regulations have to be followed they have to be followed by the teams and they have to be followed by the governing body so if if the governing body outside of the relevant period that the regulations cover have tried to act in retrospect then you have to say manchester city are within their rights to say hold on a minute this is not part of the rules in like like a speeding ticket if you get a speeding ticket or a parking ticket and the body that looks to punish people for those misdemeanors um, or worse, tries to do it outside of the period they're allowed to, we would all quite rightly say, well, hang on a minute, you can't do that. Yeah. And, and Andy, I actually agree with you. I think when you look at it now, this 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 whole uh, action by UEFA, considering that their own rules and, and the time bearing shouldn't, shouldn't have gone ahead. Now, we need to find out what, what the lawyer's reasoning was, uh, what UEFA's lawyer's reasoning was, because I was uh, talking to a lawyer this morning who said, well, what they might have done ha- is is that they would have tried to work within that five-year time bar and say, well, actually, we didn't know the clock starts ticking from the point of discovery. But obviously, I mean, the real problem with the point of discovery is that it's Rui Pinto hacked emails and and things of that nature that really kick-started UEFA's investigations. Um, where, where do... do uh, can I ask you this? Do you get the sense, though, with, with the five-year, just the five-year rule on, on its own terms, Andy, that UEFA really, they don't want to push this. They've set that five-year time stamp in there, that time bar in their statute of limitations for a reason. They, they don't really, they want financial fair play as, as a threat, but pursuing this against massive clubs in the European Club Association is, is really not what they want. Well, they, they do ultimately want good to come of financial fair play. And and you have to say, in UEFA's defence, good has come of it in the sense that losses are, are much less prevalent compared to 10 years ago. There are these bigger clubs that have, have got their house in order more often than not. And I think Manchester City is a peculiar case because, yes, you can point to a lot of expense on players that has clearly helped them on the field of play and clearly helped them win titles, attract Pep Guardiola and be successful. But they've actually also spent money on a lot of other things as well. Manchester City have have done a lot of good in the city of Manchester in building fantastic new facilities, investing in the ladies' team, in in youth development as well. So it's hard to really point to all of the things that have come out of this and, and, and say that, 
Manchester City have have been completely disgraceful, for example, because they've actually done a lot of good with the investment that's come in from their ownership group, as well as as clearly trying to win trophies and be successful in a sporting sense. One thing that was interesting to me with this, I guess, this reduced punishment. So they're they've still been fined. What was it, ten million euros? I mean, um, I, and uh, that fine, I guess, from the statement, the initial statement, it was it was left in place because of the ruling that Manchester City did in fact obstruct the investigation. Um, boy, I feel like that is, I mean, that is a really weak punishment for behavior that I think kind of indicates one's guilt. Uh, and, and I just wonder how you, if you think a ten million euro fine is is actually an appropriate punishment, or if that is not in in no way a deterrent from other clubs behaving that way in the future. It is a big punishment if you're a, a team that can't afford to pay that kind of money. It's a huge punishment. Ten million euro is is a lot of money, even in the Premier League for a team like Burnley. That would be a huge amount of cash. So I get what you're saying that for Manchester City specifically. It, They'll probably take it. Let's be honest. They'll be they'll be pretty delighted with this outcome. But I still think if you look at the punishment on its own, not connected to a team of City's wealth, it is a big punishment. But let's go back to the analogy of of, of a of a, a, a lesser crime um, talking away from football and and say you were stopped by the police and you ran off from them. Okay, that that is something you shouldn't have done in itself. And then there's the other aspect: have you actually committed a crime? that they've stopped you for. Say you hadn't in in the case of the latter, then obviously that's fine. You you've not broken any any rules, you've not committed a crime, but running away from them certainly in England, I don't know about US law, is a crime. So you might get a very small punishment for that one aspect of of potentially two crimes and then the other one you're allowed to walk away because it's not a crime or it's not been proven correctly. So I guess this is the same really that Manchester City may or may not have broken the rules with regards to financial fair play. And that could be because they've not been found out in time, let's be honest. But there's also the other aspect that if they've not cooperated with the authorities in regards to the investigations and whatnot, then that's also a separate matter that needs to be punished. So I think we need to look at them in isolation to one another, if you see what I'm saying. Andy, I think in, in, in the case of, of Manchester City, it's important not to fixate on City because this is this is wide, this ruling has wider implications for football. What do, what do you see those implications being? I think it will continue to make sure that clubs keep their house in order, as I say, and not spend sorry, wildly. Sorry, sorry Andy, not to, not to cut you off though, but, but surely, I mean, take for example the hypothetical. Say the Newcastle deal goes through. I mean, what has this ruling taught the potential Saudi ownership only have a really, really good, strong internet firewall, make sure your emails don't get hacked, keep everything under wraps for five years, and then they can't touch you? Not really. You'll go through a a small process where your name might be slightly impugned, but at the end of it, life goes on. I think it would be very hard to make financial fair play subject to a period greater than five years because in England when it comes to company rules you don't need to keep your accounts for I think it's seven years more than seven years so I think to go beyond five years would be would be tough but this is my personal opinion I think that if if an owner 
of a football club or any sporting organisation wants to put their money in because they want to do whatever they want to do, I think they should be entitled to do that as long as that money is not going in in the form of a loan. If it's a gift, I, I think I think people like Abramovich and, and, and like the owners of City should be allowed to do that. And like the Fenway group, of course, with Liverpool as well. I personally don't see a problem there. The only problem I have is if it's obviously in the form of a loan, like we saw with Portsmouth, which is when this kind of started. Portsmouth was an absolute disaster. Um, that's when you have an issue. But that's just my personal opinion. And others will say, well, look, you know, football's not a business. Everybody should be on an even footing to begin with. So with regards then to financial fair play, do you think it needs an overhaul? Or would you? are you almost implying that you think it's – you would do away with it. I wouldn't do away with it. I, I would leave it predominantly as it is because I think it has done more good than than bad, ultimately. And yes, of course, th- this scenario involving Manchester City is not going to please everybody. And, and, and obviously, we love about football the tribal element. So United fans, Liverpool fans, even Spurs fans, even Leicester City fans, to some extent, are not going to clearly look at this and go, oh, well, that's that's fair. I'm happy with that. That is never going to happen. But I think if we look at FFP stood back without our jersey on, I think actually it's done more good than bad overall in the last decade. Last one for me, Andy, on this. Um, I suppose now the big win here is that... Um, City don't have the losses they thought they would in terms of personnel. So De Bruyne will stay, Pep Guardiola stays, and more than likely we will see maybe a centre-back, maybe a full-back, maybe a striker, and certainly maybe someone to replace um, David Silva. This is this is a big win on the field for them. Absolutely. Yeah, it's huge because... I heard Guardiola say recently, even if we got put into League Two, I would stay. Not quite sure about that, Pep, but um, <laughs> but I, I believe him when he says he would he would stay next season if they weren't in the Champions League and obviously were still in the Premier League. But I don't think players like De Bruyne would have been keen to stay for two whole seasons without the Champions League. I think maybe one would have been possible, but Sterling, De Bruyne, even Aguero, as he doesn't get any younger. They they would not have have stuck around and yeah Koulibaly if he's now got a choice between Liverpool and City let's just say it's between those two Klopp's obviously appealing Liverpool are, are champions of Europe the world and England which uh, obviously you'll be happy about JJ but Man City is a real credible option isn't it now and course, and yeah. and and for for somebody like Timo Werner as well obviously Chelsea now not having a transfer ban obviously facilitated him signing in the first place but he can also look around and think, well, actually, they're a, they're a team that, that are going places. And yeah, I, I think it's it's going to massively help Manchester City. And I think the only thing it could do is potentially not quite galvanise them for the rest of this Champions League season. Because say they had the ban reduced to a year um, on appeal and, and not completely reduced to zero... I think they'd have been pumped up to win the Champions League this season. So I think that's the only negative in a sporting sense. I don't think they'll quite have that edge to them now that they would have had if if this appeal hadn't have gone their way. And at last one, of course, the um, as JJ and I were talking about before you came on, the immediate impact is that now that fifth spot is back to being a Europa League spot rather than potentially a Champions League spot. So I mean, you got two really good teams that are going to miss out on 
Champions League qualification between Chelsea, Leicester, United, and Wolves. Uh, how do you see this shaking out right now? You said two good teams at the minute. I don't class my own team as a good team. Um, Leicester City, quite frankly, as hard as it is to say, do not deserve to be in the Champions League. It's been a dreadful period since the resumption of the league, even a dreadful period, arguably, this calendar year. Mm. Uh, Wolves are coming up, but I don't think they're going to do it. So I think Leicester and Wolves will be the two to miss out. But it wouldn't surprise me if Wolves won the Europa League this season and then they get in by virtue of being champions there, which means we could still have five English teams potentially in the Champions League next season. God, what an achievement that would be for Wolves. Unbelievable. It would, and 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 the way Wolves have done it, this small club that's had no money put into it whatsoever and no relationships <laughs> with, with, with major agents, it's been it's it's a fairy tale. You cynic! This is football, guys. This is modern football. Maybe I need to just get over it. Yeah, but but you know what what is wrong with that? We can't moan too much because look, Premier League fans love all of the best players, pretty much most of them being in the Premier League. And that doesn't happen without investment, without money. You can't have it both ways. Look, look, it was Arsene Wenger that ter- coined the term uh, financial doping ages ago. And he talked about that there was an established order in English football of big clubs and in European football of big clubs. Uh, money and financial doping and the elite in club football in Europe existed before Manchester City. Um, but now it's re- reaching a point where I guess... We have to figure out some more equitable means. I, I like the idea of the 80s. Uh, maybe not the 80s. Liverpool were dominant there. But I like the idea that an Aston Villa and a Nottingham Forest and laterally in the last decade, a Leicester City can can win a title and can can compete in the Champions League. And there is a cabal of clubs who don't want that to happen anymore and want to keep the money for themselves, Andy. And that's my worry. Yeah, but but you still get these great stories. You mentioned Leicester there as well. Less Sheffield and less. United this season. They've still they've still done well without spending heaps of cash. Yep, true, very very true. But we will see. Will they be able to do it over a sustained period? But anyway, these are my concerns, and Andrew's heard them Ugh. for many many years. Yes. Well, Andy, it's good to it's good to see you. It's good to hear from you. Have, have I guess before we close out, have you enjoyed the resumption of play? I know before the Premier League kind of restarted, there was concern about how things would go with the virus and. You know, no fans in stands, and and from a virus perspective, it seems like it's been a, a huge success. Um, and no fans in stands, I think people have kind of normalized. It's not ideal, but we we're certainly enjoying it. I mean, this has been this has been good, no? I think it has. Yeah, I think um, certainly from a, a society perspective, having this entertainment, this meaning to our life back is is important, genuinely, and it's not the same. It's definitely not the same and it'll never be the same, the English Premier League, without fans in the stadiums. But for now, it's it's a decent B option. Um, and yeah, overall, I think it's been handled really well by by the Premier League. And, and I'm sure the UEFA competition will be pretty similar uh, as well in Lisbon in a few weeks' time. Yep. Well, good stuff, man. Glad you're doing well. Good to see you and talk to you again. We'll catch up soon. Thanks, Andy. Cheers, Cheers Andy. Guys. Yeah, interesting stuff there from Andy May. Um, Andrew, I couldn't help but think of, of UEFA as like this risible figure now. Do you remember Saved by the Bell? Oh, my God. Uh, uh, I don't even know how to respond. I, I have episodes. Here. What was that? Hey, 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 what is going on here? Mr. Belding? Yeah, so so I, could, I thought of UEFA in a very Mr. Belding-like fashion. So Mr. Belding would come in 
into this in, in into something was going on. Maybe Screech was being tied up by some jocks, or Zach had done a zany scheme, whatever. And and Mr. Belding would come in there with all this authority, with stern face. And that reminds me of UEFA when they announced these sanctions, this whole thing. You know, hey, 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 what is going on here? We're not having this. And by the end, always by the end of those scenes, he ended up looking like a risible fool because right. Zach had outsmarted him. Yeah, I think what happened here is that like Pep Guardiola is Zach Morris. He calls, you know, when Zach Morris would call like those freeze frames, he would just like right. freeze everything happening and then talk and then break down the fourth wall and talk to the, the camera about what's going on and like get his way out. Like that's Pep. I feel like Pep... I feel like he just froze the frame until the statute of limitations expired and then he hit unfreeze. <laughs> anyway, yeah, UEFA looking risible out of that, definitely. And I I mean, the lawyers they hired, I mean. Uh, there will be lawyers. That is willing- the phrase that we hear more and more in this life. Indeed. There have been lawyers and they have won. Um, and, and now with Manchester City, with that number five spot uh, now no longer really holding the relevance that it did, you know, say three days ago. Um, I guess it reduced the meaning of the North London Derby just a little bit, but we will still talk about it uh, as these teams battle it out for Europa League positions. Um, look, here's what I'll say about it. Like, yeah, like these teams are not going to the Champions League. On on form, on the way they've played this season, they don't belong in the Champions League. I think that's that's fair to say. Uh, but as a Spurs fan that hasn't had a ton of fun days this season, this one was fun. I enjoyed the game. Obviously, I enjoyed the result. Um, they look better in terms of how they've played recently against, you know, Bournemouth and, and Everton and those games. You know, they had there were plenty of chances and, and they were able to capitalize on some bad Arsenal defending, which is really more of what I wanted to talk about um, rather than Tottenham's performance. Uh like JJ, you talk about us being a broken record on Christian Pulisic. I'm sure Arsenal fans are sick and tired of us <laughs> talking about their defending. But here is here is the only the only way that I would try to put a positive spin on the situation for Arsenal. Now, look, they are they are flawed in other areas. They're not. It's not like they're bad in defense and then they're perfect everywhere else. However, you know, if they can keep this core up front of Aubameyang, Lacazette, Saka, like I feel like there's something there that that works. Um, you know, their midfield, there's work to be done certainly, but overall, when you look at them, like the glaring weakness in defense to me is the glare is so bright and so impossible to miss. I feel like it should almost make their transfer plans easy. Like this is what we have to fix. And then if we do that, like hope, like the idea would be, okay, this should, we should be good now. Like I, I, some teams it's, there's much more ambiguity as to like what it is we need to go about doing. Like with Tottenham, I'm not like, I know something needs to change, but if you ask me who needs to be you know switched out, who's not good enough, who do you bring in? Like, it's not entirely clear to me. Uh, with Arsenal, it's so clear that hopefully it makes the way they approach the summer transfer window somewhat simple. Yeah, I, I we spoke about this before. You say it's simple, though. They haven't been able to do it in the past under this current regime, under this current system of getting players in. Um, Sven Mislintat is gone. Raul Sanlehi is the guy who is making these transfers. They have moved from the model of data-driven analytics and things like that in terms of assessing players and potential recruits to a much more scout-based system. 
So you have to hope that whoever they identify is going to come in. Also, money is a thing for them. They are not flush with it. The hit they will take from not being in the Champions League, again, is going to be a factor. The the big contracts that they already have, including Mesut Ozil, is another thing. There are lots of... What's that? I said, what a mess. Like, you don't even look at him as a player on that team anymore. Insane. Uh, So they will have to... Maybe they'll be spending in the thrift shop again, and that has not been a good place for them, uh, certainly over the last few years. This could be a a podcast unto itself, so we are not going to go deep on it, but... Like these two teams, Tottenham and Arsenal, are always, no matter what the circumstances, they're always going to be compared and held up against one another. It's just the nature of the rivalry. Which is closer to you to getting back to being a top four team? Um, Ars- uh, Tottenham under another manager. <laughs> Got it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I'm not repeating myself again. There's too much to no, cover I, on this podcast. I, and no. I, I don't have the energy. I don't have the energy for okay, it. Okay, that's good. Uh, let's see, JJ. Wolves, another one of these clubs that were probably just devastated to see the Manchester City news. They excelled against Everton. Um, I guess Wolves are fun to watch. I enjoy them. Uh, they're not really the ones I want to talk about, though. It's more the Everton side of this. Did you see some of what Seamus Coleman said afterwards? I've got it right here. Oh, Okay. Quality-wise, we've got good players, but the attitude and desire wasn't there today. We need to have more commitment on a daily basis and really come together. That won't be good enough for this manager. If we're not giving our all, then that will be that. See you later. He's not going to put up with performances like this. As a team, we need to be better and ask ourselves if we're good enough to play for this football club. He's a top manager. We can't keep hiding behind managers. We've hid behind managers for long enough. That last line, wow. Yep. Oh, man. And by the way, I'm sure as soon as like Marco Silva saw that, he probably was like, yes. You know, like what? That's probably what he was dying to hear to convince people see, it's not just me. These guys are not that good. They're not trying that hard. Like, like it's one thing to struggle under, you know, I'll even throw Roberto Martinez in there. Like, I think he's a really good manager and he's shown what he can do with Belgium. But like Carlo Ancelotti, I feel like is is a rung up. And if, if these problems are still the same under him at some point, Seamus Coleman's right. Like it it can't always be the manager's fault. At some point it's, it's gotta be on us. And I, I give him credit for saying it. It's, it's a leadership move. He called he said, he started it out by saying it was shocking. Really, really bad. I mean, I don't know what they do. Like they're another one of these teams. I'm talking about Arsenal knows what they need to fix. What is Everton? Like, I feel like it's all over the place. Yeah, and, and and the I guess the the organization that Ancelotti initially brought to the team now that's kind of ebbed away a bit, and you realize. Uh, I was just texting with our our mutual Everton supporting friend Doug, and one of the things I was texting him about, or and I think he agreed, this is like a mishmash of five or six managers and five or six different transfer policies. They've missed out on their center midfielders that have been injured. And they have got players from all sorts of different areas that just don't work and they need to move them on. It's as simple as that. And it's a it's a giant rebuild. And I, th- I think it's going to be very expensive. And we'll, ha- we'll see whether Everton's ownership, considering they're about to embark on building a new stadium, have the guts for that. And just like just hearing you say that, because they are not one of these clubs, you know, like it's going to be very expensive. That should send a chill down Everton's Everton fans spine because I mean, 
Like how much how much more can they try and outspend their mistakes? I feel like they're trying to do that every single season. They but can't, I can go. Can't, that's not sustainable for them. I, we talked about different facets of different teams that need renewal. I can go through every single position and make an argument that Everton aren't good enough at that position. I agree. That's shocking. That is, I I mean I don't know what I and. How do you how do you factor that in with a move to something that to a stadium that's going to you've seen the impact building a stadium has had on 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 trying to rejig a Tottenham squad and Tottenham right now don't get offended Everton fans but Tottenham right now are a bigger club than Everton how are they going to absorb this with no European football without that stream of cash coming through it's it's funny you said you you talked to Doug I was talking to him also a, a similar conversation and we were kind of comparing Everton and Tottenham because. We're not that far removed. Like it's it's easy to to look at these two clubs now as you know Everton is just like every year mid table and Tottenham until this year were were contenders to a certain extent. But we're not that far removed from when these two were on basically like equal footing. Uh, no, and like you look at the way things have gone in the time since, and you just wonder like will Everton have that sort of luck moment? that Tottenham had. And by that, I mean, like, look, Tottenham did a lot of right things. Pochettino was clearly the right man to bring in at the right time. He's one of the best managers they've ever had. But, you know, <laughs> Tim Sherwood kind of just gave Harry Kane a chance. Like, did like, Harry Kane change the trajectory of this club? Like, yeah, that, that let's be honest, like, it's good that, that someone gave him a chance, but the guy who gave Kane a chance is a manager that no Tottenham fan says anything good about. Like it was just a complete sort of like falling ass backwards into an amazing situation moment. You know, they got Deli Alley for what was it like four million, three million? Um, you know, like they fell into it a little bit with some of this, and you just wonder, like, is that gonna happen for is that what it's gonna take basically for Everton? Like, are they just gonna have to kind of fall into some sort of luck? Ever- Everton have been falling for a for a long time now over the last few seasons, and luck is not something they've ended up in. We'll I don't know. Like I said, I think the uh the intestinal fortitude of their ownership to have to go to the well again and try and rebuild this under Marcel Brands is going to be—it's going to be fascinating to watch one way or the other. Uh, we go to Joe Girardi once again for comment. Uh, let's see. We'll take a quick break, JJ, because when we come back, MLS is back. I don't think we've devoted the proper amount of time on this podcast to making fun of the name of this tournament. I know we've talked about it. But like I was just every once in a while as I'm watching it and, you know, a commentator will say, you know, tonight on MLS in the MLS's back cup or whatever. Like I just hear the words and I'm like, there were people that sat in a room and collectively decided that this is what we should call this tournament. I just can't I can't get past that. Yeah, it's like if you call the World Cup, the teams from all countries that have qualified through the correct process in each confederation cup. It's so strange. It's yeah. just like... It's, it's very strange. By yeah. the way, we've got a great red card, man of the match section and the mailbag as well, just in case some people aren't that interested in the MLS portion. <laughs> you, you're responding uh, to indirectly some- to like two tweets. Who who want timestamps so they can who love the podcast but want to be able to ignore the more American parts of it. So JJ is basically telling you this is the time where you hit the little thirty second fast forward button. Probably like I think, never said that like twenty times, thirty times, and maybe then you'll be there. Okay. At any rate, we'll, we'll take a break. We'll come back with the MLS discussion, and then yes, mailbag, red cards, man of the match. There's still a lot of good stuff here. Don't hit that fast forward button too many times. Oh, back now on Caught Offside. All right, MLS is back. 
I've got here in front of me, as you do in front of you, three observations of, of things that we've kind of taken away from the first week of the tournament so far. I would like to start. Yeah, that's right. I'm really taking the reins here and taking control, JJ, because I want to talk Assertive. about I want to talk about the Philadelphia Union for a second. Oh, shock. Andrew well, wants to talk. Well, about... actually, I, I think if you ask some of my buddies that are Philadelphia Union fans, they would say that it is a shock because whenever we do like our season previews or whatever, I feel like I never bring them up. But I want to talk about them now, and it's not just them. I'm kind of using them as a method of talking about a larger issue. Um, I want to talk about specifically goalkeeper. Um, I want to talk about Andre Blake because, look, we talk about bad MLS goal ke- uh, goalkeeping on this podcast. So when we see good goalkeeping, we should probably do the same. Andre Blake is an interesting figure because he had a huge reputation when he came to the union. At times, he was fulfilling it. Uh, he was a great player uh, starting out with the club. But then last year, ironically, in a year where the union were as good as they've ever been, he was not. Uh, and I think fans were wondering, well, do we actually have our guy? Like There was a time when people thought he'd be gone to Europe. Um, and he took a step back. But let's be honest. He won Philly that game. I mean, he made three saves in the final five minutes, one of what, one of which was deep in stoppage time and was it looked like a certain goal for NYC. Oh, the, sa- the, save from, the save from Hebert. Yeah, I mean, oh. he was he was tremendous. I saw this uh, at the uh, thebrotherlygame.com. I saw they pointed out Blake had a post-shot expected goal save, uh, saved of 1.7. And in a game when you win 1-0, that number is pretty massive. Um, so props to him. He was man of the match in that game, and that was a huge way for the Union to start because the NYCFC, to start out, that's a, that's a tough draw, a little bit of a New York-Philly rivalry. And, and uh, he came to play, man. He was really, really good. Goalkeeping... I don't know. It's sometimes I don't want to say it's one of those things that's that's overlooked, but like you know, games like that, you see how important it is because you had Blake's man of the match performance, and then like the goal that Sean Johnson let in. I'm not saying it was a bad shot by mm-hmm. Bedoya, but Johnson got a hand on it. He we expect a lot of him. He's a good goalkeeper, and you know you kind of you kind of see Blake at one end and Johnson at the other, and that's like in its simplest form, it was kind of the difference. No, I agree with you, and, and me and you text back and forth about that one. I've gone with a different observation, but it it, it it's kind of in the same realm as yours. Uh, balls over the top, Andrew. I don't know what it is, but a long-driven ball over the top in this tournament seems to be causing defenses so many problems. We saw it yesterday in Houston Dynamo's very good first half versus LAFC. We saw it again today where a long ball bounces and Seattle's Badiaga can't deal with it. He's bundled off it by Berich, who runs it in to score. The pitch is obviously dry, and maybe it's judging the bounce. Maybe the bounce is a little bit high. Defenders are struggling with it, but teams are struggling. There's no question. And if I'm playing on the break and I've got a quick um, center forward, I'm looking to go early and go long and catch defenses out because maybe, maybe it's just the fact they haven't played that many games and they're just getting back into things. But the long ball is causing defenses to struggle in MLS's back tournament cup play. Uh, Let's see. My second one here, JJ, I went with a couple are you kidding me results. Um, Let's talk about Sunday night. Oh, I want to reject that notion, but go on. Okay. Uh, Sunday night, Minnesota down a goal in stoppage time. Like, you kind of think, well, all right, like, it, it, you're kind of approaching change the channel point. Uh, the game was so deep. They get the own goal from Kyrie Shelton after he had scored earlier. And then Raheem Edwards plays one back to Kevin Molino, who finishes. And, like, you blinked your eyes, and it was just like, oh, my God, Minnesota just won this game. Um, 
I mean, what an incredible gut punch to Sporting Kansas City. Uh, the Loons haven't lost yet this season. Remember, they beat Portland and San Jose to start the season, and these group stage matches are part of the eventual regular season restart. Um, and what made this one even more impressive for me for Minnesota, I mean, look who wasn't playing. No Ikapara, who might be their best player. No Ozzy Alonso. No Luis Amaria. Uh, Mason Toy left with an injury in the 59th minute. Um, but even with the shot disparity, the possession disparity, they get the three points. So props to Minnesota. They stuck with it, found a way, got the win. Um, Interest, interesting. Yeah. And then I had one other kind of, are you kidding me, result. The uh, the Toronto FC-DC United game. I mean, that game, again, it felt over. Uh, Akinola with two goals. He looks like uh, we always talk about, it seems like Toronto always has somebody in the hopper. Maybe it's him. Uh, they just clearly looked like the better team. Uh, and then DC has to play the whole second half down a man. but. Credit to D.C. United, uh, remained resolved in the back, took advantage of some sloppy play from Lawrence Simon, uh, which resulted in a great finish from Federico Higuain. He's still really good. I don't care how old he is. He still looks like a player. And then in the 91st minute, header from Frederick Brillant, uh, D.C. escaped with a point. You know, we said injuries coming into this tournament. We said injuries would matter. Maybe this was – I might go so far as to say this might be the first game where you could say that was really the case. Uh, Greg Vanny talked afterwards, and he basically talked about how he had to replace his entire defense in the second half. Um, he went on to say, at halftime, Justin Morrow had some Achilles tendonitis issues. He's pretty sore. Uh, then 10 minutes into the second half, Omar Gonzalez started cramping up. He can't take a step. And before their water break, uh, Chris Mavinga is cramping up. Uh, so, you know, this is the first game in extreme temperatures. Uh, so the question then becomes, how much do you really push guys in the first half of a game, Vanny said, of a tournament? The first game in months, and so we went with the changes, and I thought they really di- it really disrupted our ability to start attacks and keep possession of the ball, and also we struggled in some of our transition defending. So he made moves based out of injuries to some of his players and, and fitness issues to some of his players that he didn't want to make, and you know I'm not going to say it's the sole reason. You're up a man, up two goals. There's not really any excuse that's good enough, but you know it, it was a factor. Um, so yeah, a couple, couple pretty interesting results that I hope people stuck with those games till the very end. Yeah, it's it's funny because you're stepping all over what I want to say, but I'm saying you're saying what what did you call it? Uh, are you kidding me? Results? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I I've gone with a, a different direction. It doesn't matter how commanding your performance is, or how comfortable your lead is, or even how good you are as a team. This is still MLS, and I talk about uh, the Toronto game. You've covered that. I don't need to say any more. Tab Ramos, Houston Dynamo with. Elise and Memo Rodriguez absolutely running riot. Were three net three one up at halftime versus LAFC. They were holding on by the end. Yeah, it is. It's what never over. It's never over in soccer, but it's never ever over in MLS. It just isn't. Yeah, and you with that are kind of stepping on my third observation, uh, which was I don't want to overreact, but I just kind of wonder if LAFC's defending is going to be a storyline this season in a bad way. You know, remember back when the season started, they gave up three goals at home to Philadelphia. Then the world stopped. And then last night they come back and they go up three goals in the first half to Houston. And the thing that, you know, as I'm watching this, the thing that I just can't help but think about is that this team traded Walker Zimmerman in February just before the season started. Remember, Zimmerman was runner-up last year to Ike Opara for Defender of the Year. Without him... Without Vela, who obviously helps keep possession, thus reducing some of the time LA has to worry about defending, you know, you just wonder if in this tournament it's going to be a grind for them. 
that it's, you know, this is not going to be a like, credit to them. They, they fought back. Bob Bradley made adjustments uh, and they got the point, which was huge. Um, but this may not be easy. Now, look, having said that, I don't want to take anything away from Houston. Their attack uh, in the first half in particular was tremendous. Albert Elise looked great. Rodriguez was great. I mean, that three of Minotas, Quintero, uh, Elise, it's, it, it's a scary group up front. Um, and, you know, they were bad last year. Um, they maybe have more to prove this season. Who knows? But they look good for at least a half last night. So if that's, I don't know, maybe Houston Dynamo fans can take some solace in, in at least getting that point uh, from LAFC, even though they kind of threw three away, given the fact they're up two goals. Well, our colleague Stefano Fasaro said that he has never seen, or it's a long time since he's seen Elise play as well as he did for Houston last night. And he reckons that Tab Ramos has got him going, got him firing. So so that's interesting. Um, my final my final takeaway from MLS's back tournament cup play is this, Andrew. Chicharito replacing Zlatan isn't happening. Oh, this is like you it's like you've gone straight to our jump to conclusions week. That was not a good night for Javier Hernandez and the LA Galaxy. Chicharito's missed penalty aside, he was snapping at chances. He scuffed his lines, and while he did score, good bit of movement for the goal, he just looked out of sorts, and he looked unfit. Like, unfit in a way that I haven't seen him look like ever in his career. But it's more than that. Chicharito has always been a decent player with a fairly good goal-scoring record, but he doesn't dominate the way Zlatan did. You can't knock long balls up to him and watch him control and volley it or lay it off to somebody else. For Chicharito, it's got to be worked into the box for him to create an impact. They've got Leggett, Kleschen, and Pavon in that side. What are they in that side for? Only to set up him. Two shots on target in 90 minutes is not good enough for this LA Galaxy side. It's just not going to cut it. He doesn't have the force of personality. It looks like it's a weight on his shoulders right now, stepping into this team. Last night was bad. It's got to get better quick. He And he, in fairness to him, he took it afterwards. He, he told his team afterwards, and he said that this one is on me. Uh, so he was... He didn't hide from it, which I... The, pen, the penalty was so bad, the goalkeeper guessed it. The goalkeeper was already moving to his left. Chicharito's head was down. He didn't even see. So he could adjust and put it into the far corner. He was dreadful. Uh, yeah, you're right. And I mean, the penalty aside, the other chance that he missed, what was it, like a couple minutes into the... Oh, uh, it broke back to him. And it's like on the on the penalty spot. And he just slices at it. Look, you don't get better by not doing things repetitively. And when you're in your early 30s and you've spent as much time out of the game as he has, you know, it's a problem. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, uh, look, I give you credit. You're certainly, look at you. You're like a real radio hot take guy, putting yourself out there, big proclamations. I mean, it's still very early. I don't know that I'm totally ready to say he's. it's not going to work. Uh, one other thing, though, that I did want to mention from that game last night. How about Cameron Dunbar? I mean, this would have like 17 years old and he looked like one of the most exciting players on the field for the Galaxy. So certainly yeah. a name to, uh, to keep in the back of your minds. Uh, C- certainly, but I'm, I'm looking at the guy who was the big coup of a signing, Christian Pavon. Like this guy was supposed to be on his way to Europe. Not This was supposed to be a brief detour. He, he didn't look great. Yeah. yeah, not a great start to this tournament for uh, for the Galaxy. Really, I guess for both LA teams, although LAFC 
considering they were down 3-1, they'll take it. So that's uh, we'll continue next week. We'll give uh, give more thoughts on how this tournament is progressing as we continue to move through it. We welcome back now to the podcast everyone that had fast forwarded ahead through the MLS talk. That it's <laughs> sad. It's sad, JJ, that we have to say these things. I mean, come uh, on, people. Like this is this is our league in this country. Like it. No, it's and these it's games- our sport. It's the world sport. We talk to everyone. I do. I need to list the countries where we've got listeners. How about oh, you respect but- them? But like people, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Dismissiveness of MLS sometimes is, I don't know. We're not dismissing it. They can dismiss if they want, whatever. Yeah. yeah. Uh, All right. Mailbag. Mailbag. Uh, Caughtoffsidepod at gmail.com on the email that I haven't checked in about two weeks, but I will get back to checking it. Caughtoffside ESPN on the Instagrams with all the kids who love the Instagram. And uh, at Sua Soccer Pod on Twitter. This is from Twitter. Tweedle D for the male Beezy. What do you think is more to blame for the low scoring so far in MLS is back? The time of day, heat, or not having played competitive games in four months? I think it's mostly the rust of not having played competitively in four months and probably longer considering they played two games uh, at the start of the season and before that it was preseason and offseason. Yeah, I mean, look, ultimately all those things matter. Uh, also, there's a few players who matter that aren't playing. You know, Joseph Martinez, Carlos Vela, um, yeah, the rust, lack of adequate training time for players to get on the same page. Like, that stuff's important. However, however, I did want to see if what we're seeing so far is actually unusual in terms of goals scored. So through this morning's game between Chicago and Seattle, there have been 12 games played and a total of 31 goals scored. So I went back and I looked, JJ, at how many goals were scored in the first 12 games of when the season actually started back in March. Uh, you know how many were scored? No, thirty-one goals. The same exact, uh. the same exact amount. That's it comes to roughly two and a half goals per game. Not a huge number, but not necessarily a tiny one. Um, I wonder if maybe this issue feels like it's a bigger one to people because you now have the ability to watch every single game. Whereas, like in a, in when the season starts, you might just watch your team's game, and like six other games could be going on at the same time that you're not watching. So you just like those may be nil nils. The game you're watching might be a two two. So you don't even care because you miss those other ones. So you're not thinking about it. Like now you can watch. Like uh, you know what was it? Was it Seattle San Jose that was just like brutal um, when the, those mm. two played? You know, like you're watching those games now because there's no other game on at that time. So maybe it's just like standing out to people a little bit more. But I don't actually know if it's been all that unusual so far. Um, th- this next one is an incident that happened on Twitter over the weekend. So like minutes after Liverpool dropped their first points at, uh, at Anfield in the league in the modern era against, uh, Sean Dice's Burnley, um, Blake got in contact and I, I, this is by way of an apology as well. So Blake tweets out, is there a more overrated premier league player than Mo Salah? And I'm like, yeah, he missed a sitter. I get it. But I was like, he can't be serious with this. So I just re- responded, Blake, this is too an in to answer. I'm sorry, man. And he goes, gotta love arrogant JJ replies. And I thought, you know what? That is a bad re- response by me. Um, but then I thought a little bit longer about it. And it's like not. I mean, in only three seasons, this is what Mo Salah has done. He was the golden boot winner in his first and shared the award in his second season. He's the fastest Liverpool player to 50 goals, doing it in 69 games, faster than Fernando Torres, Luis Suarez, 
Robbie Fowler and Michael Owen. Legends. Just last week, Mo Salah reached 100 goal involvements for Liverpool in the Premier League. 73 goals, 27 assists and 104 appearances, becoming just the fourth player to do it for the Reds after Gerrard, Fowler and Owen. And he's in the race for the Golden Boot. Like, how can you say he's overrated? Is there a more overrated player, no less? Like, it's, come on. So, a couple of things. He's uh, frustrating. I get it. Sometimes he's frustrating, but overrated. What are you talking about? Yeah, a couple of things. First one, um, I wholeheartedly disagree with with Blake on this. I, I really, I think pretty highly of Mo Salah as a player. Um, second point, um, on his gotta love arrogant JJ replies. Uh, so, I saw that response, and I actually, I looked up Blake's address, and I, I tracked him down. I drove across the country uh, to his house. I rang his doorbell. I didn't even introduce myself. He, he just opened the door. I high-fived him. And then I just got back in my car and drove back to New York. <laughs> Welcome to my world, Blake. <laughs> oh, I'm not that bad. Come on. Jeez. What's next? What do you have next? Have I no friends in the world? Uh, Stephen Bradikin. Uh, where do you want Weston to end up? We're on first name terms here. Weston McKinney, where do we want him to go? Uh, so I've seen the links to Liverpool, which I, I'm going to be honest. You don't, don't like. I don't love it. I uh-huh. don't love it. That Liverpool team is one of the greatest Premier League teams we've ever seen. Their midfield is very good. I don't, I don't know how much time he's going to get in that starting 11, which is not what I want for him at this stage in his career. So I know this is cliche for an American fan to say, but what about a club we talked about earlier that need overhaul everywhere? JJ, what about Everton? Yeah, I, I think, think so. I think you get into that squad. Like think about I, central midfield, Anthony Gordon, Gilfie Sigurdsson, Tom Davies. Like, I don't know. How's that working out? Is that like Anthony Gordon's 19. So maybe you want to continue to give him a chance, but like, I mean, you could have a, you could set up a, you know, a two in the midfield with Gabamine when he's fit and uh, Weston McKinney. McKinney is going to run lots. He's going to get tackles in. He's going to be good. Not quite box to box, but not, not unlike that old, that old style of player. He's going to work hard. The fans will like him. I was thinking Wolves as well. Hmm. Wolves would be a good landing spot, but I'm not sure where he fits into that team right now either. I don't know. The, the yeah, honest truth is that, that Wolves midfield is tough. Like I looked at Everton just because I looked at their midfield. I'm like, these guys are whatever. Like I think I think Wolves might be harder for him to break into. A lot of my assumptions are based on the fact that some players might be moved on at certain clubs and he'll slot in there. All right. You know what? In terms of the way they play, I think Sheffield United would suit him perfectly, but uh, Americans would turn their nose up at that idea. <laughs> you think so? Oh yeah, no, they wouldn't want him there. Yeah. Like, so you you believe that the American soccer fan thinks Sheffield United is is beneath us? Oh, you you want him at you know your Chelsea's, your Manchester City's, your Liverpool's, your Manchester United's. In which... fairness to American soccer fans, I have not gotten that sentiment from U.S. soccer Twitter. Mm. Okay, they'd see Schalke to Sheffield United as a sideways step. I think not an up step is what I'm saying. I love I love Sheffield United. But there we are. Okay. Uh, Adam Tierney, is it possible to discuss Wigan going into administration? Seems like the worst case scenario for a fan in that situation. Um, yeah, so uh, they have been deducted 12 points for going into administration, which is a, I suppose, a, it, it's not something we really, 
administrators are appointed and they basically look at the assets of a club. It's when a club is in serious financial difficulty. And the, the fine for it is a uh, 12-point deduction, which will be applied at the end of this season if the Latics, who are 14th in the championship, finish outside the bottom three after 46 games. Should Wigan finish in the relegation, relegation zone, the penalty will be applied during the 2020-21 season instead, which is seems really cruel. Uh, Wigan have won all three of their league games since the resumption of the championship season on the 20th of June. They're eight points clear of the drop zone with six matches left to play. The predicament they find themselves in is extremely shady, Andrew, and has to do with an ownership switch. But that would actually be an amazing in the club. It's it's so far-fetched, it's, it's hard to believe it, but there's a lot of bad things going on there. But Wigan are fighting hard, and they beat Hull 8-0 today. So I wanted to- it was seven nil at half time. So I want an- another club in an absolute case of shambles. I wanted to bring that up just quickly. The the Hull Wigan match. So it's seven nil at the half, and Hull City tweet out from their official account the score, and I'm just like, just sit this one out. Like whoever it is that's running the Hull City Twitter account. Like it's not so important to your followers that you need oh, to no. get out that score from your official from the official team. Oh, oh, Andrew, they know what's going on? Why? Oh, Andrew, no, no, no. Even in the worst, most dire circumstances, the rule of football social media is the guy running it must be involved. Like, <laughs> I mean, let's just have let let's be able to like operate on the fly here. Okay, our club's down seven nil. Our fans are probably ready to jump out a window of, of a building. Like. Let's just not tweet for the rest of this game. All right, everybody, you have the afternoon off. Go home, be with your families. Like, why there's tweet, nothing why to tweet be, the scoreline at halftime? There's nothing to be time. said. Nothing. You're so right. <laughs> yeah. um, you, you've you gone and, and perverted this wonderful system we have by adding your own mailbag entry. So let's get to them quickly because we've got an amazing red cards and man of the match section. Yeah, super fast here. This is from Matt underscore K underscore TX. He said, what team, he's talking to me here because uh, I'm a Tottenham fan. He said, what team other than Arsenal can you just not stand? A team that isn't a rival, but a team you just don't like. Mine is Manchester City. They always just make me mad. They always look bored and kick your butt while doing it. Um, as I was thinking about this question, JJ, I think I came to the realization that I pretty much hate everyone. Like I, I sort of just like my team and everybody else can just kind of go and do stuff. I, I mean, mean, you you make it easy for me to have Liverpool be the answer to this question. Um, I've always yeah. felt uh, also um, not obviously it's different now with Christian Pulisic there, but uh, I've always I've said on this podcast that my disdain for Chelsea has always been right there with Arsenal. Um, oh yeah, Chelsea are the original money bags. Yeah, no, no one likes them. Yeah. Um, Do you have one? I mean. Team that I like properly like, I know, hate. I know Man United is typically your answer, but who's well, like, Chelsea- your your wild card hate? Oh, uh, Palace for such a long time. What? Because of the because of the three three? No, pa- oh. well, not just that, but Palace would rock in and beat us. You know, they destroyed Steven Gerrard's farewell game at Anfield by turning up and winning. How dare they? <laughs> you know, stuff like that. Palace or Watford, and I used to what? Yeah. I, and I just really didn't like Huddersfield either. It's like, nah. Yeah. I'm glad I brought this up. This is fascinating. I don't know if Huddersfield, if there's a more, if there's a team out there that I've devoted less time to thinking about than them. I can't yeah, no, believe but I, that that's who you're saying right now. Yeah. I yeah, no, it's just talking about Manchester City. Like this is, this is very just, strange. 
it's just like Huddersfield in the Premier League, and I, you know, I'd be like, oh, look at them there when Sheffield Wednesday and Leeds, proper clubs, are not in the Premier League. Wow, wow. Uh, let's see. At J D Cameron, he said, unsolicited mailbag question. Given the recent United resurgence, you get one guy for the next ten years. Would you rather have Holland or Greenwood? Uh, we've gone really deep in this podcast, JJ. This is a big question that uh, could probably we could devote a lot of time to. I. I don't know. I, this is like flip a coin, I guess. I'm going to say Greenwood, but I really have no basis for that. I'm going to go with Holland just because I've seen more of him. Okay. But not by much. I've seen a good bit more of Holland. I would think. Champions League. Yeah, yeah Maybe you're right. Maybe, maybe it's getting even now at this point. Uh, let's see. Last one. Uh, at T. Jones, 1994. He said, I just started a career in FIFA. I'm a Man, uh, Man U fan, so I chose them. Obviously, having all the money to spend is dope, but it's not entirely fun. I want to start over with a mid to lower tier team. Any suggestions? Who do you think, JJ, would be like a fun kind of outside the box team to play with as uh, in FIFA? For Oh, right now, Leeds United. Okay. That'd be you want him to go down in the championship and bring them up. I like that. Yeah, well, I mean, they're very close to coming back up. That's we, we've got to do. We've next week we have to devote a whole amount of time to the championship. It's really beginning to come to a culmination down there. Leeds United, or if you wanted to stay in the Premier League for right now, Sheffield United, do something like that. Okay. Or Wolves, just be different. All right, I like it. Uh, all right, here we go. Red card. <laughs> you go first, my friend. Um, this is from the BBC. Uh, Sheffield United said it will support striker David McGoldrick after he was racially abused on social media. The club shared an image from McGoldrick's Instagram account showing the abuse with the Blades player writing 2020 and this is life. The club wrote, this cannot con- continue. Something needs to change. McGoldrick scored his first Premier League goal as United beat Chelsea 3-0 at Bramall Lane on Sunday to move into the Premier League's top six. Republic of Ireland striker McGoldrick's abuse follows the arrest of a 12-year-old boy in connection with racist messages sent to Crystal Palace forward Wilfried Zaha on social media. Sheffield United added, As a club, we will support David McGoldrick and we will do all we can to find the perpetrator of this disgusting message. We will work with the relevant authorities to ensure the person behind this post is brought to justice. The Football Association of Ireland condemned the appalling abuse and offered its support to McGoldrick, who made his international debut in 2014. A spokesperson added, such behaviour is appalling and cannot be tolerated by football or society. South Yorkshire Police said it is in contact with Sheffield United and will continue to work with the club in relation to this matter. Um, I'm not suggesting people put themselves through the trauma of looking for the messages that were sent, they're readily available, the abusive messages that were sent to Wilfried Zaha and to David McGoldrick. But if you're under any illusion as to the scale of this problem in society, if you still labor under some idea that it's not as bad as people are saying, the viciousness of those messages is breathtaking, absolutely horrific. And I think what was in particular for me with the Wilfried Zaha one, what was particularly sad about it when I when I saw it come across, I think they mentioned at halftime of the North London Derby that someone had been apprehended, and then it was a twelve year old. And I think to me that that kind of hit me in a different way, just because you know I think we sometimes accept that you know certain a certain age group uh, that believes stuff like that is lost. They're broken, and and in some ways I would I would almost say unfixable. When you when you hit a certain age and these are your feelings on on the world, then I'm sorry, I can't help you. But 
this movement that's going on now, and and like you and I, we've been talking about this on, on red cards ever since we started this podcast. Like, oh my god, it, this is all about trying to save a generation. Um, and so when you see it come from a twelve year old, you like, I know it's only one person, and so you don't want to get in your head. But when you see that it's a twelve year old that did it, you start thinking like, oh no, we're losing. You know, like because that's the generation that we're trying to save uh, from from being poisoned in this kind of way. So man, you just like keep at it people like these messages of, of social justice, racial tolerance, like it's keep doing it because you're trying to save that group, like that, that next generation that's coming through, uh, you know, they, they need to understand that this is not the, this is not the way. Um, so that was just, that was particularly sad to me that, that when I saw it was such a young person responsible for that, that's sucks, man. Uh, let's see my red card, JJ, let's pour one out for Norwich city. Ah, yes, the club that beat Manchester City, beat Everton, drew with Arsenal, drew with and beat Leicester, drew with Spurs, and then beat them in the FA Cup. Yes, that Norwich City are the first ones to be officially relegated. The days of Timu Puki taking the Premier League by storm really do feel like an awfully long time ago now, don't they? Uh, Since the restart, though, they have just been a complete disaster. Seven games Seven losses, and how about this total scoreline? 17 goals conceded, two goals scored. Uh, This team came back for the restart, but they never really came back for the restart. Uh, This is from Paul McInnes in The Guardian. He said, Norwich have gone down ignominiously in the end, barely leaving an impression on a division where they couldn't score goals and never looked like keeping them out. For the most part, they looked as callow as Bambi on work experience at the factory. Did Ray Hudson like invade Paul McInnes's body for that last line? So that's it. Narge City. They're gone. Will they bounce back? Only time will tell. I think so. I think the club is built for this, Andrew. I think they know who they are and um, have spent accordingly, which will be crucial for them uh, returning. Yep. But it's it's tough. Uh, let's see now. Man of the match. <laughs> now, I'm going to call an audible here, JJ. I know your man of the match is particularly meaningful for you. So I'm going to go first so we can go out on yours because I think it would be weird to do it the other way around. I appreciate that. Uh, My man of the match, um, I don't believe we mentioned this a couple weeks ago, so I'm going to mention it here. I went with Jesse Marsh. Uh, Salzburg won their seventh straight Austrian Bundesliga title, but it was uh, his first. And last weekend, they they won it a few, they clinched it a couple weeks ago, Um, but the season just came to an end. Last weekend, uh, when the season officially came to an end, he was named as the league's manager of the year. So let's be honest here. Jesse Marsh, like, good for him, man. He took a gamble on himself. He had a pretty good thing going here in MLS with the Red Bulls, one of the best clubs in MLS. Uh, and then he left in the middle of that 20, uh, 2018 season to be an assistant at RB Leipzig. Um, and, like, this isn't meant with any offense to New York Red Bulls or MLS, but, you know, Jesse Marsh, it was good with them, but he had bigger things in mind, and it's paying off. Uh, ESPN FC's Tom Hamilton has a feature up on the website about Marsh. And there's some really good insight in there. He talks about just kind of like needing to be willing to go out of your comfort zone. Uh, and he certainly did that. Uh, there's a light on him now. I feel like his stock is his stock is high. Tom asked him about that. And here's an excerpt of what Jesse Marsh said. He said, I believe my secret to life is focusing on the moment. Uh, then when asked if, uh, if this is just a standard managerial speak, Marsh added, look, it's not BS. I love being the manager of this club. It's amazing. The people, the country, everything. I realize I won't be here forever, good or bad, but the more I can focus on the moment, the better. Um, so we'll see. Like He's right. He's not going to be there forever. 
Um, this is probably a jumping off point for bigger, even bigger and better things for him in Europe, I would think. You know, we saw Bob Bradley's foray into the Premier League with Swansea and it didn't go great. And Marsh is kind of taking a different route. He's kind of working his way up through Europe. And he's been in the Champions League. He played, you know, he he had his team in it against Liverpool at Anfield in, in a 4-3 defeat. Like, there's, you know, we, you, you've been here long enough now, JJ. You know how American soccer fans are. You know our insecurities. And you know how we get behind our guys in Europe because we, we it's almost like we feel like they're playing for us. Like, it's like the world doesn't think that we know anything about this sport, that we can't play the sport. And so when we see our guys performing in Europe, it's like, yeah, take that, you know, old European mentalities. And, you know, the same is true with Jesse Marsh. Like we've never really had a coach thrive in European play like this. Um, I mean, I guess you could maybe say David Wagner a little bit, but like, we'll see what Jesse Marsh does next because I feel like American fans can, can get behind this and, and root for this guy as he continues to, to potentially move up through Europe. So good for him, man. I was to, very, for, very happy. to, to be Totally honest, I, I've sat in on lots of Jesse Marsh uh, press conferences, and he always struck me as a, as a different kind of guy, as a different kind of um, different kind of American coach, even within that mold. Good luck to him. It's going to be, I think, the big challenge will be when he eventually, we assume, steps outside of the 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 Red Bull family outside. Well, of those they're structures. out. Salzburg is no longer because of like restructuring laws. Uh, Salzburg is no longer technically part of the Red Bull network. Yeah, but when he, he goes on to a job where he has to build a side, that's going to be key. That's going to be the most interesting thing. But he's, he's doing brilliantly so far. Absolutely is. Yeah. What do you have? Um, my man of the match is uh, Jack Charlton. So I woke up on, on Saturday morning to the sad news that former Republic of Ireland manager and World Cup winner with England, Jack Charlton, had passed away at the age of 85. Um, I find it hard to put into words the impact he had on my life, but I'm going to try. And... He had such an impact on the lives of so many people in Ireland. Before Jack arrived as Ireland manager in 1986, we had never qualified for anything. We'd come close and had bad luck, but for the amount of top players we had competing in the English top flight, to have not qualified for one single Euros or World Cup was a huge underachievement. That all changed when Charlton arrived and immediately qualified us for the 1988 Euros in Germany. He changed the course of Irish football forever. In 1997, he spoke to the BBC Radio 5 about his plan to change the fortunes of Irish soccer. We play the ball into the corners, condense the areas, put them under pressure and play from there. And it worked a charm. It wasn't a knockabout, take your time game. It was a rush game, more of the sort of game that the Irish expected of their own Gaelic players. You get the ball forward, you compete, you chase people, you close people down, you create excitement, you win balls when you shouldn't win balls, you commit yourself to the game. A lot of the pundits didn't like it, but the teams that we played against hated it. They never experienced anything like we dictated to them. The summer of Italia 90 changed everything for me. I was eight and I was absolutely obsessed with the Irish soccer team led by Jack Charlton. It was the biggest thing in my young life. In qualifying for USA 94, my parents would let me stay home from school for the big home matches. It was all afternoon kickoffs. Lansdowne Road didn't even have floodlights then. If my parents or siblings were talking during the pre-match coverage on TV, I would shush them. I would get so nervous and excited before games. This was the most important thing in my world. 
I will never forget when my dad got tickets and took me to my first ever Ireland match in Dublin, our second last home qualifier against Lithuania for USA 94. Being in Lansdowne Road to see my heroes play, led by the most famous man in my world, was thrilling. At one point, Andrew, in 1993, Ireland were ranked sixth in the world. On the way to USA 94, we beat the Dutch away, the Germans in Hanover, and in our first World Cup game, we beat Italy at Giant Stadium. Jack Charlton gave our country so many great times, and he made people happy. That is an incredible thing to say about any life. Nothing will ever feel like that again. Nothing will ever be that good again. Rest easy, Big Jack. Thanks for everything. Oh, man. He's uh, he's a hero, really, in, in two countries, no? It's amazing. Someone said that to me. Is there another figure in, in culture or history between our two countries that's a hero in both? And I don't know. I couldn't think of anyone off the top of my head. It was just, it was so such a happy time, man. We were taken on the world and we, we could beat them. And I don't think I'd be here doing this, which is the thing I love most in the world. I don't think I'd be doing this right now if I hadn't caught that bug in Italia 90. And it's down to him. And he was such a good guy and a working class man. And he, he cared about people and he cared about the country. He became an Irish citizen. Um, and I shouldn't, like he had a great innings. I shouldn't be sad, but I'm nearly not sad for him. He was 85. He had a great life. I'm I'm sad for myself because it's it's the passage of time, and 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 we'll never go back to that. Well, he's I get what you're saying. He's one of these figures that just kind of held a place in your life that like he, it's like he represents more than just who he was. He represents yes, like a period, an entire you know period of your life that you you know that's it's a nostalgic feeling, and you know I totally get it. Um, that was beautiful what you said there. That was really nice, for real. Um, great stuff. I had a man. few. I had a few pints on Saturday. I, I hadn't planned on it, and I, uh, I had a few pints. Socially distanced Guinness because he loved Guinness at USA ninety four. He had his own Guinness bar installed in his room. Oh my god! So he, so he could pour pints. The man was unbelievable. Like a kegerator. Yeah. <laughs> and he used to have journalists up to. He'd have journalists up to his room for interviews, and he poured them drinks. That is it was it was a different era, man. And um and he invented pressing. So take that, Jurgen Pop. <laughs> wow, great stuff. Hey, this was this was fun, man. I enjoyed this podcast a lot. Our thanks to Andy May for joining us earlier to educate me, but not JJ, on what happened with Manchester <laughs> City. Um hey, to you I say Check you later, fun boy. See ya. Take care, my man. You've been listening to the Caught Offside Soccer Podcast. 